Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, your weekly dose of the politics stories that matter for the North and from the North. I'm Rob Parsons, Northern Agenda editor for Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News. I do a daily email newsletter about the North of England's politics that you can get in your inbox every lunchtime if you sign up at www.thenorthernagenda.co.uk. Today, I'm going to focus on an issue that sparks very strong emotions from both sides of the argument. It's also a huge policy challenge for political leaders, both at national and local level. And crucially, it disproportionately impacts towns and cities in the north of England, meaning it's something voters in those coveted red wall seats could be basing their votes on come the next election. The issue of who claims asylum in this country in what numbers and how they're getting here has been hugely controversial in recent weeks. Rishi Sunak has made his plan to stop the boats, one of his priorities as Prime Minister, and has unveiled legislation which aims to stop people claiming asylum in the UK if they arrive through unauthorised means. It's described by the UN's Refugee Agency as an effective asylum ban. The House of Commons was even more fractious than normal when the illegal migration bill was debated last week. For an example, here's Scott Benton, a Tory MP for Blackpool South. Our public services are already creaking under enormous pressure and we simply can't accept hundreds of millions of people who would no doubt look to come here for a better life. I am afraid this country is nearly full. And presenting a contrasting view, here's Liverpool's Labour MP Ian Byrne. This bill, everyone is subjected to the removal duty can also potentially be detained. This House should be doing everything in its power to ensure that people fleeing persecution and violence are given the safety, care and support they need, not inflicting further trauma and harm on them. Is this really what we have become? It shames those in this House who have gone before us. Now, it's undisputed that in recent years, the number of people claiming asylum in the UK has gone up as people flee persecution and war around the world. But what happens to them when they've arrived in this country and apply for permanent leave to remain? A process that now takes months and months. I've been looking at government figures which show that towns and cities in the north of England are taking a much greater share than other parts of the country. In terms of the number of asylum seekers in so-called dispersed accommodation like hotels, the North East has a rate per 10,000 people that's 10 times higher than the southeast and the southwest. Glasgow in Scotland is supporting nearly 4,500 people in this way, giving it the highest rate in the country. But places like Holton on Merseyside and the northeast areas of Newcastle, Middlesbrough and Hartlepool are not far behind. So what's going on and why is the north taking more than its fair share? People who understand the system tell me that northern areas take a disproportionate share of those fleeing the world trouble spots because accommodation is cheaper than in the more affluent southeast. The 10-year contract drawn up by the Home Office with private firms like Mears to house asylum seekers incentivise those involved to put them up in the cheapest place possible, which often means hotels in poorer areas with fewer services and amenities. Alarmingly, in recent weeks, far-right groups have descended on places like Knowsley on Merseyside and Rotherham in South Yorkshire, resulting in clashes with police outside hotels, accommodating asylum seekers. But I wanted to find out more about what the asylum system actually means for these northern communities. And this week, asylum seekers and those involved in making our broken system work all came together at Newcastle Cathedral 
in a bid to find the consensus about the way forward. It's part of the work of the Commission on the Integration of Refugees, a body of diverse experts touring the country, taking evidence from local communities before publishing their findings at the end of the year. Because of the sensitive nature of what was being discussed, I agreed not to publish the details of any of those people speaking in Newcastle without their consent. But what I heard was alarming and fascinating in equal measure. One huge issue is that local authorities are excluded from the process of deciding where asylum seekers should be placed by the Home Office and that accommodation sites are often opened up with no notice and little communication with residents. Because asylum seekers are often moved around Councils in the northeast often struggle to organise education for children or ensure that their health needs are met. They're prohibited from working until they've been in the country for a year, depriving local firms of the opportunity to fill their growing number of job vacancies. And home office rules mean they have to find somewhere to live within 28 days of being allowed to remain in the country. This is a time frame considered far too short for people who have been forced to live on a few pounds a week for months and often can't speak English fluently. After the hearing in Newcastle, I spoke to Leslie Story, a senior councillor in the city, to ask her what she made of it. I found it an incredibly moving and powerful session. Um, I think hearing from people with lived experience what they've gone through, not only in terms of abuse or violence or mistreatment in the country that they've fled from, but then to come to a country where they think they're going to be safe and to actually feel re-traumatised by the process, by, by, by being processed, by human beings being processed in a system that is broken, inhumane and unjust. And I think one of the things that really came across to me is the people that we heard from today were academics, were engineers, were people who, you know, have got a huge amount that they can give to us, that they can bring to our society and to this country. And the system doesn't allow them to do that. It doesn't allow them to work. It doesn't allow them to have, you know, a, a meaningful life. And I think we are all the poorer from that. Very recently, I met with um, a, a, a refugee from Iran who was a dentist, who was a facial surgeon, who, you know, what, what do we need in this country right now? One of the things that we're really short of is dentistry, you know? And yet we have doctors, dentists, highly skilled people who are not able to work and want to work. And actually, the resident population here in the UK wants to see that happen as well and would really welcome that. Why can't we just make that happen? So how would you categorise the, I guess, the relationship between people who are in Newcastle and the North East, uh, either seeking asylum or granted refugee status, and you know, the communities at large in, 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 in where you live? Are... Are they well supported? Like, is, is there more that, as a, as a city, Newcastle could be doing? I'm incredibly proud of what we've done in Newcastle. We're a city of sanctuary and we have welcomed refugees and asylum seekers here for a very, very long time. And what I would say is not all local authorities do that and not all local authorities take their fair share 
of this responsibility and burden. And central government needs to do a lot more to compel and hold to account local authorities, many of them in the south and southwest of the country, that are not taking on this burden. Um, and I would really like to see some focus being put on that because we've always done it. We're proud to do it. We're happy to do it. But everybody has to step up right now as well. Obviously, in the news, there's been these high-profile incidents in places like Knowsley and, and, and Rotherham, you know, the far-right gathering outside hotels where asylum seekers are a place. Obviously, there are hotel, that, that does happen, not, not the protests, but there are asylum seekers in hotels in Newcastle and Gateshead as well. I mean, how, how well do you feel that situation is being managed by, you know, the providers that sort out the accommodation and central government who draw up the contracts in the first place? Do you have concerns about that? I'm incredibly concerned. I, I, you know, what we've seen happening nationally, particularly in Norsley, but, but in other areas as well, is really frightening and really worrying. We've seen far-right demonstrators coming often from outside of the city. We've seen police vans, police officers attacked. We've seen, um, you know, staff working in accommodation projects terrorised. And the residents, people who are seeking asylum and, and refuge in our country, absolutely terrified this is not how we want to see things happen in this country and we need to do everything we can to prevent this i've personally raised this issue with northumbria police with the home office and i will continue to do that but actually again central government need to step up and allow us to put measures in place that protect hotels i'm very very worried about you know about staff um, I've certainly spoken to staff from the voluntary sector, young women predominantly, who are working in accommodation projects, who've told me the far right has been taking their photograph or videoing them coming in and out when they're going to work. You know, this, this isn't just an issue about asylum seekers and refugees. This is a community safety issue, and it's an issue for our resident community as well. Outsiders coming in and stalking up hatred. So you're worried that we could see potentially a repeat of what we saw in Nosley in Rotherham in 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 Newcastle if if things don't go the right way. I think this could happen potentially anywhere in the country. We um, we are very observant around community tensions. We look at intelligence issues. We gather and collate that so we can keep a weather eye on you know on what might happen. But we can't prevent it from happening unless we're given the tools and powers by central government to be able to put a buffer around hotels or any accommodation projects to protect not only the residents, but actually the staff who work there and our statutory services as well. They've got better things to do with their time than stand outside hotels to, you know, to manage protest. Um, you know, we, we need to see police officers out on the streets doing policing, and this can be avoided if we're given the tools and powers to be put in place to, to be able to protect people. Leslie Storley, thank you so much. Thank you. Another local figure with huge experience of the issues facing asylum seekers and refugees locally is Habib Rachman, a former Lord Mayor of Newcastle who now works at the North of England Refugee Service. He told me about the challenges faced in areas like Newcastle every day. Well, first, uh, first and foremost, op opportunities. So there's the lack of opportunity for um, 
our uh, communities to um, uh, take part in various aspects of engagement, whether it be volunteering, um, gaining um, uh, lots of skill sets by just participating. Uh, but one of the things that uh, we focused on today is uh, that barrier, uh, that prevention, <clears throat> uh, that fear factor, uh, the hostility uh, um, um, about refugees. And those are the real barriers that are really preventing various voluntary sector organizations um, to interconnect and support uh, willing uh, residents who are willing to uh, uh, participate and share their lived experiences and some of the qualities and experiences that, that they they bring. One example that I provided at the hearing we were earlier on was a, a new arrival within the second day that she arrived. She willingly was looking for opportunities to become volunteers, uh, volunteering in anything. And we were one of the first services that she Googled. So she's a, a volunteer with um, um, our services uh, at the North of England Refugee Service, which provides a holistic support um, to any of the migrant uh, communities coming um, to uh, uh, better themselves and receive the, the, the support. Um, refugee, each and every one of those migrant uh, community, they're there, they bring so much qualities and skill set. It's how best we can use and utilize some of those skill sets. And the only way we'll be able to do that is if we have a better engagement and communication uh, with all our new uh, residents coming to the city. That's how they should be seen as, not labeled as refugees or asylum seekers or uh, new uh, migrants coming in. There are a lot of barriers, aren't there, of different, of different types to people yeah. who come to this country who, who want to work, they want to integrate, they want to be of use to the, the society that they're joining, but for various reasons they, they don't always have the opportunity to do that. Sadly, yeah. Um, and I think one of the, uh, one of the barriers are, uh, we know, there's, uh, it's proven, it's fact, um, that um, each individual have vast amount of experience and expertise and qualification behind them, bringing from the country that they've fled the persecution and the violence, um, and the victimization, it's how can we now recognize uh, those qualifications and skill set, uh, looking at ways of transferring those qualities and experiences um, into recognizable. So uh, therefore, it opens up the route um, into um, employment. Um, and of course, the other um, aspect is, um, let's face it, we all speak one language, whether we're English or uh, somebody from another country. And when you uh, embark uh, in a journey to go to another country to, uh, 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 you know, make a, uh, make a fresh start, then the challenge is to learn that language. So those communities um, arriving in our shores, uh, they should have the best of opportunity through the, the ESL provision and uh, um, the additional support that's there for them to pick up the language. Um, English, I've been told, is one of the easiest languages to learn, but we can only learn, or one can only learn, if the opportunity is there. Um, and those are the basic uh, um, provision that needs to, be, uh, needs to be in place to provide somebody with the best of helping hand. Um, and you know what? Uh, me uh, coming in contact with uh, another individual from a different country, I'll be gaining a lot more because I'll be uh, picking up uh, some fantastic uh, skills, namely 
I'll pick up uh, learning one or two uh, new words in a different language. Uh, that's a, a, I'll, be, I'll be proud of that um, uh, um, skill set to be had. It's well documented that the north of England, for various reasons, has accommodates more asylum seekers and refugees than uh, the southeast of England. Now, what sense do you get of what the communities that asylum seekers and refugees are accommodated in, What, how they feel about that. Are community relations good in general in the areas that you know about between the people who are coming into this country and the communities that they're, they're based in? This is my city. I'm proud of my city. We are a city of sanctuary. Um, we are a city of black and white. We embrace and welcome people of all walks of life. That's the history and tradition of uh, Newcastle upon Tyne. Uh, and that's how we uh, uh, present ourselves. You know, uh, we are known as one of the friendliest people in Britain, the Geordies are. Um, and that's the attitude and the reaction that we uh, uh, demonstrate to new sets of arriving uh, communities, whether somebody from the south uh, coming here to live in this part of the world or uh, refugee and mi uh, migrant communities uh, choosing to move here. We are a very welcoming city and I, I, that's probably uh, the evidence that's demonstrating and you know what, I'm proud of that, uh, that here's a positive label that we've got and new arriving communities see that, how supportive um, individuals are, the various voluntary statutory organisations are, the businesses are in really supporting, welcoming and putting in place ways how we can um, offer our support to make um, that individual feel at home because this is their home um, should they choose to stay here uh, forever um, and we'd love to um, have them here uh, forever uh, because it's their home. Habib, thank you so much. No, thank you very much. Pleasure. So what did the experts from the Commission on the Integration of Refugees make of what they heard? I asked Dr Ed Kessler, one of the commissioners, whether the picture was different in the northeast to elsewhere in the country. I mean, the Commission on the Integration of Refugees is having hearings all around the country. So there are some things that have, we've heard that echo what we've heard elsewhere. Um, the desire for being able to work sooner than you can, be able to give back to society. We've heard that again and again and again. The issue of isolation, being dispersed outside of one's community um, and living on £38 a week, um, so you can't really take a bus in and use £5 to go here, there and everywhere. So that, is, uh, that sense of isolation is something that we've heard. But what's different here and what's, what's really intriguing is the very close relationship between the voluntary sector, sometimes faith-based, often church-based, um, and local government and local authorities, and some really effective programming, whether it's drop-in centres, whether it's advice, and that's something that seems to put the northeast, not just Newcastle, but here in Sunderland, in um, South Tyneside and other places, that there seems to be this connection on a local level that's really impressive. I observed that too, but one thing that uh, struck me was that we heard from a few people was the sense of local communities having this imposed upon them in a, in a way. And we heard a lot about, you know, the government is saying this has to happen. A certain number of asylum seekers have to come to this area. And there isn't even like, you know, local councils don't have that much 
control over how that is done and they're doing their best to mitigate that i mean is that is that a common theme that you've you've heard throughout i'm afraid it is so the immediacy of a central government directive and suddenly you come in on a monday morning you've got to deal with a new situation at a local level that that's not unique to the northeast um, it's a real issue, the lack of joined up thinking, the problem of communication. I mean, you've got the levelling up department, you've got home office, you've got so many departments involved. So not only do you have the problems of communication, you've got problems of, 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 of conflicting directives. Uh, we had the situation in the West Midlands where um, the, um, the, 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 the local council had different instructions arriving the same week on the same topic. I mean, how can you work with that? So. Central government, uh, there's a huge amount of work to be done. We know all the problems in the Home Office. We know the system's broken. That's not just me saying it. That's the Home Secretary saying it. Um, the former Home Secretary saying it. So there's a big issue there. And I think one of the things the Commission hopes to achieve is not just to criticise and condemn and say um, what's not going well, but taking examples of good practice and saying, look, this can happen, say, in the Northeast. It can happen nationally. One suggestion we heard today was a kind of welcome packs, as it were, to children, refugee children, coming into school to their parents. What's expected? You're expected to drop the child off at a certain time and to collect the child at a certain time. That may seem obvious for those of us who are parents or brought up here, but if you're coming from a different part of the world, it's not so obvious. Although it's a terrific idea and not so very difficult to achieve. How hopeful are you that when you publish your, your findings that they will be received in the spirit that you hope by the government. So obviously, it's it's become a very big, sensitive, and partisan political issue in the Commons recently. That you know, it's very much sides being taken, and it's almost sort of come up, starting to develop a sort of culture war aspect to it. With all that being the case, is the government going to want to hear what you are saying when you eventually publish? What's distinctive about this commission is it not? It's not just consisting of a bunch of advocates. Um, we have uh, no, no lefty lawyers. Uh, we, we have lefty lawyers, but we have righty lawyers as well. Um, we have um, lived experience. We have refugees. We have the former head of the border force. We have right wing and left in, left wing politically, as well as faith, faith leaders and a whole range of different experts. And I think that's what gives me hope, because if we can find consensus amongst this group of people, we have Tory MPs, we have Labour MPs, we have Lib Dems. Um, we're going up to Glasgow, we'll be meeting the SNP. So we've got this real unusual group that wants to come together because they know the system's broken. And that's what gives me hope, because it's not just about um, a certain political position, or it's not just advocacy for one side. It's saying, look, we can do better, and we can do it better not just on moral grounds, not just on... Uh, practical grounds or social cohesion, but on economic grounds. I mean, how many hundreds of millions of pounds are we spending in areas that's done inefficiently, whether it's private contractors in some places in terms of hotels, uh, whether it's about stopping people from working, and we have this need for workers. So there are economic reasons as well. So my hope is, yes, that at the end of the year when the Commission issues its report with recommendations, it will feed into the election cycle that we know is going to happen next year. Uh, and yes, I'd be very disappointed if some of the recommendations are not implemented, or at least my hope is that they will be. Ed Kessler, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk it's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other Laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.